Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, Keith Baldry is my guest, Global News Legislative Bureau Chief. We're doing a half hour late Baldry's beat here. You're preempted by David got, Eby I got, today. I got big footed. Say again, I, turn, I turned your mic on there for you. That works better that way. Yeah, I got big footed by the premier. So he, he took the time slot at 10. Yeah, yeah. What can I say? Okay, so let's, let's break down some of the stuff we heard there. First of all, let's talk about the year. I mean, this is the day he does these, what they call the year enders. Yeah, so he's, he's doing a bunch of year enders. All day long. Sitting down with my, my pal Zussman uh, today, other networks, other papers. Yeah. For sort of 15 minute, 20 minute slots yes. through the day. Yeah. I was concerned we had a lot of fog yesterday that he was going to get fogged into Vancouver, which yes. would erect everybody's plans, including, well, he could have done the phone with you. Yeah. Um, which is different. Yeah, so, you know, a year ago, a little more than a year ago, he became premier. There yeah. were some questions at the time. What kind of uh, leader was he going to be? What time of premier? He'd come from, of course, sort of an activist past. Sure. The BC Civil Rights Association, Pivot Legal Society. But I think he's sort of confounded his critics in that he hasn't lived up to that image of being this activist type guy. Radical. Not the guy, the guy who was down in the downtown east side, yeah. duking, fighting with the police. Well, the downtown you know? east side was cleared on his watch. Yeah. You know, you've got, um, uh, you know, he's f- flying pretty high in the uh, approval ratings. Anytime yeah. you're hovering around fifty percent, if you're a political leader, that's like gold. Yeah, you know, that just take that to the bank. His party continues to be well ahead of the other parties who seem to be fractured in their opposition to him. Uh, so he's defied expectations for many, and and you you started off your interview with him talking about the big thing that happened, which was the housing file. Yes, that was a huge, and it continues to be a huge uh, shift in policy, yeah. the likes of which we've never seen before. Will it work? Who knows? There's a lot of people think it will. A lot of people poke holes in it, say it won't, but we'll see. But one of the things I find frustrating, I mean, you've had a flurry of legislation, so it's certainly created the image, at the very least, that he's doing something. This is an activist government on this file, and that's certainly the message he wants to get out to the public. This is a high priority, and we're doing stuff here about it. But I tried to get him on, what is the measurable outcome you're trying to achieve here? Like, how many housing units are you... Can people expect? Well, for many, is, the, is the price of housing going to be affordable yeah. and come down? Like he doesn't have a lot to say about no, they you know, the actual outcomes and measurements of, that he's trying and, to achieve. And not only on that file, but on a number of other files as well. Yeah, decriminalization, for example, mental health uh, issues. There's not a lot of measuring sticks yeah. associated with some of these policies. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, the, the flurry of legislation certainly gives the impression that something's happening. Right. And I think there is, um, he mentioned there is already signs that the short-term rental market is collapsing. Yeah. And that's, that's a definable measurement. Sure. But the, house of, uh, the price of housing yeah. is not, no one's predicting that it's going to go down. In fact, his own government, that modeling report that came out associated with the housing, when we finally got some details, is projects a 7% increase. Yeah. Um, so, again, with our high immigration levels, uh, it's going to continue to increase the demand for housing. Okay. And the supply I, can't catch up fast enough. I asked him about the, the political picture we got here in B.C., which has been basically turned upside down with the rise of this B.C. Conservative Party now confounding everybody. And then you've got the, the former B.C. Liberal Party, now B.C. United, 
Kevin Falcon is the leader. And I asked him in a speech, he went after Falcon recently and said he's a former real estate developer, so we should not trust him. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I asked him about that. And here's what he said about Falcon. Let's listen. <laughs> you know, what are you going to say? I mean, he, he voted against reforms that members of his own party spoke out and said, what are you doing? Because these are actually going to bring on the housing supply that we need for people. I, I don't understand his perspective, and uh, and I hope British Columbians pay attention to what he says and what he's voting against. Okay, is he literally laughing at Falcon there? On well, the- I don't know why. Falcon continues in the in the legislature to brag that he's a developer. I'm not sure that's the best image to put in front of voters when you're trying to sort of appeal to the everyman out there. Well, he's trying to say he understands the system and yeah, how to fix there's it. A, there's a risk with that. Uh. Developers like many journalists, don't have the highest reputations. It's not something I would really define yourself as. I would expect the NDP, you can expect a lot of attack ads uh, come the next election campaign. Uh, They will frame Kevin Falcon as the developer, the real estate speculator, that type of image. But it's going to be interesting in his next breath talking about Falcon. He then talks about John Rustad. So it's it's an ongoing... The the BC conservative leader. There's an ongoing debate... I know within the NDP government, who is their enemy, their chief enemy, is it or chief opponent? Is it Kevin Falcon and the BC United, or is it John Rustad and the BC Conservatives? I've talked to cabinet ministers who have two different views of this. Some of them are pushing that it's really they got to turn their sights on the BC Conservatives. In fact, as Joe Hall asked um, uh, EB, I think last week or the week before, yeah. in an interview, who's your chief opponent? And yeah. He didn't say who, but he immediately started talking about John Rustad. Well, he went after Rust. He went. He went more aggressively after Rustad and the Conservatives than he did after Falk. Yeah, in fact, when he was talking to Jazz, he actually complimented BC United. (laughs) He said, "At least they follow science. At least you know, sort of, they characterize them as normal, whereas he's characterizing the Conservatives as sort of way out there." In fact, John Rustad. There's a video on Twitter, and and the BC United MLAs are, are. uh, posting this vi- a video of his interview with the People's Party of Canada candidate host, yeah. talking about sort of this conspiracy uh, to deep linking fighting climate change to depopulating the the planet. So you've got the BC United chasing him after that. So this schism that exists between the two, there's no signs of any murder. Well, there there, there is there are some sci- climate scientists who say that human overpopulation is the problem, and there should oh, be yeah. and there should be government policies and measures being being brought in to control population growth. Yeah, well, the, so, watch the video as I said. It's a little yeah. more wacky than that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I asked I asked EB about uh, decriminalization and the drug overdose death rate we got here. I started the show today speaking to a, a psychiatric nurse. She works in a Metro Vancouver hospital, yep. and she deals in. A, she works in the emergency room. So she deals with people who are coming in with overdoses, who have got yep. psychotic episodes because they're mentally ill, you know, and a lot of it being driven by dr- drug use and mental illness, and in many cases both at the same time. So I asked E.B., what about this rising death rate from overdoses? Are you still in support of what your government's doing, decriminalization, decriminalizing drug possession? Here's what he had to say. What we're trying is uh, just about everything to try to keep people alive and get them into treatment. That's why uh, we put a billion dollars in the budget to expand yeah. treatment across the province. We're working with the Canadian Mental Health Association on 100 additional beds. We've got the uh, 90 beds underway at the Road to Recovery Centre that are operating right now. And we're going to have to continue to expand that infrastructure because it is a massive crisis and a growing crisis. People need that treatment and support. Well, you can't, you can't expand that infrastructure fast enough. Yeah. And that's the challenge the governments have. It's one thing to say, yes, increase, 
increase treatment resources, but it's a challenge to actually expand in the physical space that's required for this. And then there's the issue of involuntary treatment, which he sort of danced around. And he seems Kevin, to have backed away from that. He seems to have, yep. Um, yeah. Kevin Falcon hasn't, Yeah, which is um, that's sort of a, a difference between the two that I think will emerge in the months ahead. But he hasn't completely backed away from it. Yeah, and he's not backing away from decriminalization. I, at least I haven't heard him de- back away from well, decrim. He's not backing away from safe supply of drugs. No. Back Although, in the, at the same in the same breath, and he did this with me again this morning, said, well, you know, we did ban drug public drug use around parks and playgrounds, right? So he says we have sort of walked back, walked it back a little bit. Well, right? back in the spring, if you recall, remember sitting up there and watching question period, he referred to decriminalization as an experiment. experiment. Yeah. And well, if it's an experiment, it's not etched in stone. There are changes. And then we saw that one change. That was a piece of legislation, banning drug use in parks and school grounds. That wasn't there at the beginning of decrim. So I expect, I wouldn't be surprised next spring when the House comes back, we're going to see more legislation linked to the whole drug use problem. Well, remember, next year is an election year. Yep. And I think what we've seen from EB is that he's a clever politician and he, he can't adjust. You know, if, he's, if he senses a vulnerability, he can adjust. He right? can pivot. He can pivot. Baldry's Beat. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Natasha in Ladner. Hi, Natasha. Go ahead. Yes, hi. Um, just a question regarding EV, the cars, electric cars. Uh, yeah. Once I own one, uh, I get into an accident. Uh, what happens to them? Where does ICBC come in? What happens to the batteries? Where do I get it fixed? Um, my, my concern here is that later on, I'm buying a $100,000 car that I'm forced to buy. And yeah. where, what happens to all that? We, mm-hmm. We're not very good at our foresight. We have no bridges yet. We have no pr- proper roads yet, so to speak, the infrastructure. Um, to me, what do you want me to do? Go buy another $100,000 car? You know, well, you'd be still be covered no. by ICBC if you're getting an accident. That's a good point, right. though, about an accident. So the Economist magazine had a great piece a few months ago about just this fact, how do you, who fixes electric cars? So most mechanics are trained on combustible engines. Yeah. Uh, there's, because electric, car, electric vehicles don't need a lot of maintenance, yeah. there's really the battery, and that's it. So it's an interesting question about, about uh, maintenance and accident reconstruction of an electric vehicle. Well, we did a segment on the show last week about the, a guy who bought a, uh, an electric vehicle, um, had an accident, and it was a, the 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 battery was damaged, and the price he was quoted to replace the battery is Vancouver guy was sixty thousand yeah. dollars to replace the battery, more expensive than the vehicle. <laughs> and so there's been a lot of horror stories like that. Yeah, there are horror stories. Now keep in mind, you know, it's it's evolving. Yeah. You know, I'm you know I've been very skeptical about these targets for electric vehicles. I don't mm-hmm. think they're attainable, but the technology is evolving. There's a number of of people out there saying the price of the battery will dec- will decrease over time. Batteries will get better and cheaper, yeah. but we're still not there. Yeah, and it's still very expensive. Brian and Kamloops. Hi, Brian. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. Just Hi. Uh, I think the governments are on the right track for building houses, but that's going to take a long time. What they should do in the meantime is become rather than just a regulator and builder, is be a market force by buying up existing units that they don't have to renovate, take them off the market, the government can set their own rent, and eventually they'll be competing with what's out there in the market. And uh, the governments have access to so much money and interest rate that uh, that are so much better than the consumers have, 
they could be a, an almost instant market force. You want the government to you want the government to be your landlord? Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Well, you know, I asked E.B. about that because he's talked about not just building social housing for, for poor people. He's talked about building housing for the middle class. Yep. And he said, yeah, we're, we're getting into building housing. That's the plan here. Don't rule that out. I mean, I think the, what he has set in motion is all sorts of things that hadn't been contemplated for years. Yeah. You know, um, governments used to build housing. Post-World War II, a lot of construction was done by government. Yeah, he talked about that. Let's go to uh, Gary on Bowen Island. Hi, Gary. Go ahead. Thanks. Um, our taxes have been in the last three years since 2019. My taxes have been going through the roof. The, the property value of my place has gone up six hundred thousand dollars, and I think the government's just making money. They're rubbing their hands all over this every time because uh, Vanderzan brought the property transfer tax back in back in the eighties there when the mm-hmm. house was forty thousand dollars. And now the, the federal government and all these governments are making money on the, on the valuated price because you're paying the GST. Somebody's getting rich on this. And then every time the NDP gets in power, we had Harcourt, we had Dosans, we had Clark, all these guys, every time they, they make a big mess and they got to cut back on immigration. Thank you. A lot of connections there. <laughs> yeah, well, let's, well, let's talk about how much money they're making off the property transfer tax. Like, they do make a lot of money. Oh, a lot of money. I mean, yeah, we're talking, high. you know, a couple billion dollars. Yeah. Um, no, that's a, it was brought in by Bill Van Der Zam. Yes. I remember that. I'm recovering that. Um, but, yeah, it's a cash cow yeah. for government. Uh, they are uh, Now, the money goes into general revenue. You can argue, oh, it goes into health care or whatever. I mean, that's what governments will tell you. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big source of taxation. It's not going away. Yeah. Yeah, let's go to Steve in Coquitlam. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. I'd just like to say uh, you guys were talking on another uh, time that uh, who would take over if uh, if um, the uh, um, B.C. Conservatives and the B.C. United uh, got together. Well, I'll tell you, it'll be Chrissy Clark. I'll guarantee it. She's coming back. Well, She's already Clark. a federal conservative now. She used to be a federal liberal. She works for Bennett Jones, and her job there is... Uh, natural resources, social license, and indigenous relations, and Asian uh, trade, right down her alley. Perfect. Well, there you go. I don't think Christy Clark will be coming back. I don't think Christy's coming back. But I've been back. surprised before. Yeah, well, you know, I remember when Christy first ran for leader. She was a CKNW talk show host. Yes. I was on her program all the time, and I've known her for a long time. And I remember... Always remember pulling over in my car. She phoned me. She said, I'm, "I'm thinking about running for leader." At a time when the BC Liberals were really low in the polls, yeah, I spent 40 minutes on the phone with her trying to talk her out of running, <laughs> and saying, "Look, you got a great job at CKNW, great paying <laughs> job, high profile." And she said, "I know, I know, I know." But she made the point. She says, "Once you're in politics, it's in your blood. Yes, and you yes. can't resist." Yeah. So that's. I agree. I don't think Christie's coming back, but that's the one caveat I would attach to that. I don't think Christy Clark would want anything to do, though, with the BC Conservative Party. No, no. I, I mean, don't. even in like merger talks. No, and know? and she, no, her, their policies are way out of. Is a merger possible? Could that happen in the new year uh, between the BC United and, and the BC Conservatives? It comes down to personalities and egos. I mean, really, one, who's going to lead a merger party? Is is it going to be Kevin Falcon and John Rustet? The two of them don't like each other. No. And I don't think either of them will give way for, to let the other guy step in. So, well, they could have a leadership race. They could vote on it. I guess they could do that, but yeah. one of them would have to give in to do that yeah. and run the risk of being replaced. And there's not a lot of time. You know, we've, the next election is in October, if not sooner. Yeah, they'd have to get going pretty quick if they want happen. to do it. Daryl and Coquitlam. Hi, Daryl. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call. 
When, sure. when the Premier was talking about affordability in British Columbia and making things affordable like ICBC and BC Hydro and that, what he never touched on is the, the mass uh, exodus of British Columbians in interprovincial uh, migration from here to Alberta. For the first time in 20 years, we have lost more people interprovincially than we have brought in. And these are long-established British Columbians who are leaving the province. And it's just not an affordability crisis in Metro Vancouver, but it also affects the Okanagan and the capital region, and he doesn't go near any of that. Okay, that's a perfect segue to the next segment, by the way, Daryl, so you should hang yeah, around. Yeah, so I think, you know, anecdotally, I know people who have relocated Alberta. They basically yeah. cashed in their hugely expensive homes in Metro and, and the capital region and have bought homes that are, a fra- not a fraction, but a substantially lower cost. You can buy a detached like house in Edmonton for like 480000 Yeah, or- I know someone in my Fairfield neighborhood who's cashed in their you know, nearly $2 million home to buy a $200,000 home in the Annapolis Valley in Nova Scotia. Yeah. You know, they collect, <laughs> they save close to $2 million there. So that's why British Columbians are cashing out.